Hi, and welcome to Dismantled, a podcast for intersectional environmentalists. I'm your host, Leah Thomas, and throughout this season, we'll be featuring conversations with diverse activists, changemakers, and leaders in the fight for climate justice. Intersectional Environmentalist, or IE, is a digital platform with resources, information, and action steps to help dismantle systems of oppression in the environmental movement. We believe conversations about the climate crisis must address and be led by those most impacted by it, Black, Indigenous, and POC communities. This season is sponsored by DROPS. In this episode, I'll be having a conversation with Sabs and Deandra, who are both co-founders of Intersectional Environmentalists. Also, we can't forget about Phil the Fixer, who is also a founding member, but he'll be behind the scenes. Hey, Phil. Without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to Dismantled. And today we're joined by two very special guests who are also co-founders of Intersectional Environmentalists. So without further ado, I will pass the mic to Sabs. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, I'm Sabs. I use she, her pronouns. Um, As Leah mentioned, I am a co-founder of Intersectional Environmentalists and I am the director of communications. Awesome. And Deandra. Hello, I am Deandra, otherwise known as Dee. I use she, her pronouns, and as Leah mentioned as well, co-founder of IE, I am heading up business development and operations. All right, so yeah, I'm pretty sure everyone would love to learn a little bit more about you all and how we got started. So if I can think back to the summer of 2020, there was just so much happening at once. I had never experienced something like that in my entire life. We've got a pandemic, we've got the Black Lives Matter movement, and so much social injustice, and then we're all just stuck in the house. But somehow throughout that, we found each other and we made the company of our dreams. So Let's see, where did this exactly start? I think it started from a DM. So who slid into whose DMs first and how did the two of you all meet? So Didi and I connected last year. Uh, we were both living in New York. I still live there. Um, but I found out Didi was moving to Houston and also found out that she's from there. I too am from Houston, the great state of Texas. H-Town. H-Town. <laughs> um and I, we connected and when I plan on being back in Houston, we agreed to meet up at some point and that was in May, full pandemic mode. And I remember Dee Dee messaged me and asked if I wanted to join her for some protests that were happening in Austin following the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, and we hopped in the car together. It was like the first time we hung out. And we were in the car for like two and a half hours and it could have gone very south, but we had beautiful friendship connection. And then we got to Austin and met Phil, our fellow co-founder. <laughs> yeah. My connection to Phil had happened a little bit prior to that. I'm really good at sliding in people's DMs. I think I have effectively slid into all of y'all's DMs. So <laughs> that is how I've met all of you. So... I met Phil first because he was one of the few people I knew talking about environmental justice in Texas, um, or at least, you know, in a way that was accessible on Instagram. So I found him, slid in his DMs, and was able to connect with him. He was super amazing, and I loved all the conversations he was hosting on his podcast. And then Sabs, when I found out that you were moving to back to Houston, or just coming to home to visit, I made sure to slide into your DMs, DMs as well. And I think our initial plot was to rally the community for like a documentary night. Um, the community rallying ended up evolving a little differently. <laughs> but yeah, that was the initial plan. And then Leah, I slid into your DMs. Um, I just really was vibing with your blog. I loved your blog and all of your writing. And I was like, man, I really want to talk about diversity in the sustainable movement. And, and yeah, my search led me to you. Well, I'm so excited just, you know, the power of sliding into people's DMs. Um, it's incredible. But something else that's incredible, I guess, is our ability to mobilize people within the last six months. So we have 200,000 followers. I guess, first and foremost, how does that make you feel? It's 
truly been kind of the most incredible journey ever because when we started off, today I think exactly is six months ago is when we officially started IE. And from at least from my perspective, I had no clue how big this was going to be. We were like, oh, let's create this really cool platform. Maybe some people will check out our website. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) We had no idea. But I do remember that people were already starting to have a lot of really interesting conversations. And I don't know if we want to touch on this in the podcast, but when we were on that phone call between me, Didi, Phil, and you, Leah, which is the phone call that birthed intersectional environmentalist. (laughs) I remember going into that call and not really knowing what was going to happen. Personally, I thought we were going to maybe consider talking about organizing and mobilizing a little bit, kind of connecting all of the our different locations, because Leah, you're in California, Phil and Didi are in Texas, I'm in New York, and maybe finding ways to get local folks and young folks activated in our areas or find something else. And I remember we were like, let's make a website. And that seemed like a really cool, really very present and very modern way to really start to mobilize in a very different way that is accessible to a lot of people. And one thing that we've really found that I think is exciting is like, So many people have come to our website and just, even if they're just checking out a couple of resources, it's incredible to be able to provide that sort of aggregated resource for people. And, you know, we're hearing stories of people and professors and teachers updating their curriculums or using some of the resources that we've shared on the IE website to teach their students. So I think even if we didn't go into it, understanding the impact we would have, it's kind of a beautiful, we've just seen these beautiful waves of all of the impact that we have had. And I'm so excited for the next six months, the next year. I definitely feel that too. And for our listeners, just to back it all the way up. So basically, like, how did this start? Like, what what, what was going on? Um, so I guess how this this these events that Sab so beautifully described basically started, we were all feeling something missing from the environmental movement, maybe for years in our own personal lives, even before we knew each other. And I'm really passionate about intersectional theory created by Kimberly Crenshaw. Shout out to Kimberly. Thank you for blessing us with this beautiful framework. And I really just thought there should be an intersectional type of environmentalism that really focused on environmental justice. And I feel like that was so prevalent over the summer because there were so many intersectional things happening at the same time. We've got a pandemic. So we're looking at the flaws in our healthcare system and who's being impacted the most. We've also got environmental injustices that are impacting the same people. And then we've got the Black Lives Matter movement and the same people each and every time we're really experiencing the brunt of um, environmental injustice and just injustice as a whole. So that's when I put out the post that went viral, just environmentalists for Black Lives Matter. And Didi also had a protest sign, I believe, that said environmentalists for Black Lives Matter, which was awesome. And there was all these people that were just mobilizing in their own way, demanding that the environmental community take a stand for Black lives, which felt beautiful. And with all that momentum of the internet, while everyone was so cooped into their homes, that conversation that Sabs had, it just felt right. We had all this energy, a movement, essentially, for intersectional environmentalism that was so beautifully, almost like gifted to us. We had people saying, you made this thing, now we want you to lead it. And what a blessing to be able to do that. And from that, we've been able to create a website, you know, mobilize a community and just try to figure it out. And I guess, Didi, as we're figuring it out, what has been a learning lesson for you throughout all of this? Because I think this was really unexpected, but some of the most beautiful things are unexpected things. Yeah, I think that one of the biggest things I've learned kind of from the from the very, like the beginning, just from the jump, was that despite the fact that a lot of the incredible voices in this space haven't been brought to the forefront in the past, 
there has been so much incredible work already done. And we just are so not alone in, in any of this that we want to achieve. And I think that that's what has been so beautiful about the growth of our of our platform. So I think when we were initially launching the website, it just became this really organic way of looping in all of these people in our community who we know have been doing such incredible work and really just letting that work shine in a way that people just weren't as receptive to before. I think that that was where where we did our best to help the community capitalize on this new language that we had, right? We were we were all rallying around intersectional environmentalism because for so long we saw the word sustainability get co-opted by, you know, arguably white women. <laughs> and so and so it was it was great to to just have a moment to recognize through the building of the platform that like, wow, there are just so many people in our community that that we get to amplify through all of this. And it, it definitely, in a time that was very overwhelming, uh, I think made us feel a lot less alone. Yeah, completely. And I think for our listeners, what does that mean to you all? Like, why was intersectional environmentalism so needed? And how were people kind of co-opting sustainability or even regenerative living? And why... Because for me, I could say, you know, my textbooks in environmental education, I didn't learn about indigenous wisdom. I never had a professor that looked like me and environmental justice classes were not mandatory in environmental education. But what was that void, I guess, that was missing for each of you all personally that made you gravitate towards a more intersectional environmentalism? And why do you think so many people are resonating with it? So at least for me, I have had a quote-unquote sustainability blog for the last four and a half years now. But a lot of the conversations from when I first started were really just super hyper-focused on trash and on plastic waste. And these are things, these conversations around trash are something that almost no one can really argue against because we all know trash is bad having too much trash, it all goes to landfills, or it ends up in the oceans. We can pretty much all agree on that. Everyone was like, stop using straws. Yeah. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then when you, for some reason, when you bring in a human element to the sustainability conversations, there becomes this kind of invisible wall of people who just don't want to have those conversations because they're deemed too political, which, you know, the environment as we know it, has become political. And we really can't sit out of these conversations. And the folks who are able to sit out of those conversations hold a lot of privilege because there are people who have faced environmental injustice for their entire lives. And they don't get the platform that maybe the white people of the environmental movement have had, even though they face a lot more of the negative repercussions of the environmental movement. So... I think this became, and this is something that we kind of talk about a little bit, it became this opportunity for people to feel comfortable having those conversations, to start talking about climate justice, to start talking about environmental racism, to talk about food apartheid, and to talk about climate refugees and all of the ways that the climate crisis is disproportionately impacting BIPOC, LGBTQ plus organization, uh, sorry, LGBTQ plus populations, disabled folks. And we're really providing this platform to bring those voices to the forefront, those voices who have historically been silenced or erased or ignored, because we can no longer afford to ignore those voices. Absolutely. And I think something that you said, it made me think about a IG live that I was on. Um, and I hate those sometimes. I really do. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy them. They're a little and, awkward, you know? And, they are. You know, they're a little, they're a little awkward, but there's comments that come up. And there was one guy who repeatedly kept asking me, where's the data? What does environmentalism have to do with race? The climate's not racist. And I basically just on the live is like, why is it not about race for you? Instead of like burdening BIPOC to explain 
over and over and over again why something might be pertinent in their lives. Like, I think a lot of environmentalists can be asking themselves the same question. Why was I satisfied with a type of environmentalism where I could declare myself an environmentalist if I had mason jars, a Tesla, and I wore the most expensive nude color tone sustainable fashion like that shouldn't have been a qualifier you know and I think it's interesting like you said with us bringing that people component into it a lot of people yeah they're really vibing with that but there are a lot of people who are like nah this is controversial but people shouldn't be controversial but Didi yeah what was it for you that was missing that made you want to be a part of this movement and not only that freaking co-found a company (laughs) dedicated to it. What was that aha moment for you? Um, Yeah, so when I first started learning about sustainability, more specifically, because I think we all grow up, you know, learning about protecting the animals and the planet, right? And we watch all the, the cute little animal shows. But when I started identifying with the word sustainability a little bit more and unpacking it, like very early career, right? When you're like in your first job that you barely know how to do and you're like secretly like Googling sustainability stuff. Uh, Or was that just me? Okay. (laughs) So um, yeah, I think very early career when I was like very interested in unpacking sustainability because I was pursuing a career in fashion, the first place I went was fair trade issues. And because that was the first place I went and started unpacking, I never saw the human element with like the planet element of sustainability as mutually exclusive. I always knew them to be incredibly connected, but I didn't really know how to speak to it for a long time. And Leah, you know this because this is how I reached out to you via DMs. For a long time, we were speaking to it as kind of a little collective in New York, a sustainability crew, if you will. We were just speaking to it as the importance of diversity in the sustainability movement and making sure that we're amplifying, you know, the history that that's there, um, that BIPOC communities have, have been able to contribute and really frame sustainability um, in ways that have been heavily co-opted by you know, a a white narrative. So for me, it started out in a way that was not mutually exclusive at all, but I quickly learned through hosting different um, events, discussions, attending panels, and creating online resources for people to research that it was a lot easier to get people to have the conversation about turtles than it was, you know, coastal communities that were being heavily impacted by all of the trash that we were producing. So yeah, I think that it was through that journey that I that I really recognized that people were not willing to have a conversation about environmental degradation for people. Um, and then I think even a slightly more complex layer on top of that, especially coming from the fashion space, was that people didn't even want to entertain the notion of appropriating and co-opting and distorting culture in the way that we celebrate it in media um, and in ways that can be harmful. So yeah, I, I think I just never saw them as mutually exclusive. And that's why through all those experiences, when I when I saw your post go viral and we started paying attention to the conversations that were happening online, I mean, man, that moment that people were having the conversations finally, like it just, I think it became so clear and it and it struck me so evidently that it just felt so important to to create a platform around it. It also felt a little frustrating because there were people who have been having these conversations, mm-hmm. who've been at the forefront of these conversations, yeah. who all of a sudden everyone's like, okay, let's start learning. And it's like, why were you not paying attention before? Why did this have to be the catalyst? Because there are incredible folks, Leah, you, Didi, mm-hmm. um, Dominique Drakeford, uh, Winnie McGuire, uh, Amber Tan, uh, yeah, just so many incredible people. Teresa Baker, Aja Barber, so many incredible people having these conversations who they're just, people we're not listening to. And only now it, it, it just felt like a very obviously important shift to have, but also a little bit frustrating at the back of your mind because there were folks who just weren't listening up to this point. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely, exp- I saw, and of course, you know, it's, you take it with a, a grain of salt. It's like, it's good and bad, I suppose. But a lot of folks that in the past, you know, I know would show up to events and kind of scoff at the notion of race being included in the conversation or would just like glaze over when the film screening was about people and, and not dolphins. So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so, 
it's interesting to watch that shift and see people be really invigorated by this new language that we have, you know, intersectional environmentalism. So it's beautiful. I think that there's still something to be said about detecting like who's being performative and who's not. But I think that it's just so nice to see people be able to rally around something. I think trying to separate identity from environmentalism is like peak privilege in so many ways because I I can't. Like I can't separate my blackness from my environmentalism. And Didi, you alluded to that um, earlier as well, like your identity and how it's already, it's connected with your love for sustainability. So I just find that interesting. I also find it interesting that I think sustainability for a lot of people prior to 2020 was something that they could brag about. You know, you can, and that's also, you can find that in the, you know, philanthropic space as a whole. There are a lot of people who basically want to buy their way into sustainability, like we were talking about earlier. And then it makes you feel good. If you donate thousands of dollars to save the whales, everybody loves whales. That doesn't seem very controversial. Um, But then it was almost like when we started bringing up this conversation, some of those people were mad. They were so mad that they were maybe no longer going to be considered, you know, a good person if they care about the whales, will fundraise for the whales, but if they don't care about Black people. And I find that something that has been a little disturbing, to be completely honest, that some people are like, now we got to care about we got to care about the kids in the cages. We got to care about the black people. And I'm like, so you guys can go hard for salmon, but not my like cousins. I find that to just be so odd. And I bet we could, you know, go on and on about that forever. But it's not like we're even, what we're asking for to me is not that controversial. We're saying protect people and the planet and the animals. Well, here's the thing too, is like, People have been saying protect people on the planet this whole dang time. <laughs> exactly. In their own mission statements, too. I've seen it in some mission yeah, statements. No, absolutely. And I think to that point, you know, what I have found to be particularly interesting with the whole, you know, protect people on the planet, but then people being like, what? When you actually bring up people. <laughs> I think, They're like, not those people, just the whites. <laughs> right. Just the whites. No. Um, just the people who are privileged enough to advocate for whales and salmon. No, I, I think that what we're finding now as well, as, as we're all exploring different ways of using the framework of intersectionality and applying it to environmentalism more specifically, one thing I'm finding that I really hope people start to, to grasp and, and be able to reiterate to, you know, those folks who don't really want to harness both people on the planet is that when we're able to unpack a type of discrimination that is tied to someone's identity, it, to me, it doesn't feel like they pile on in this never-ending list of things to unpack because they're all so deeply connected that when you're able to resolve um, or address or acknowledge one thing, you're you're simultaneously acknowledging and addressing so many things at once. So I, I hope that people start to come to that conclusion that yes, there's a lot to unpack, but there's so much opportunity because it's all like all of these issues are so deeply connected. So it's not a never ending list. It's a beautiful web that we get to um, address so many things simultaneously. I also find it interesting. I remember over the summer at one point, somebody, I think I asked a question on Instagram and somebody mentioned that they were a Trump supporter, but they were also following me for zero waste tips. And that just (laughs) felt like such a strange dichotomy of how can you have those those two things in one human, I guess we are all intersectional, but okay, sorry. I mean, that, that was like, that like <laughs> the wrong white. type of intersectional. <laughs> that sounds like a white-led sustainable movement to me. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Exactly. That's peak why we need intersectionality. If you could basically ignore a bunch of people whose civil rights are maybe being violated, but then be like, oh, I like to recycle. That still makes me an environmentalist. I think that's point blank period why we are really gravitating towards intersectional environmentalism. (laughs) Think about all those plastic bottle cleaning products that you see filling grocery store shelves. Those cleaning products are loaded with unnecessary chemicals and dyes, and a shocking 68% of those bottles aren't recycled. That's over 275 metric tons of plastic waste that goes into our oceans and waterways every year. That's why 
we love drops, the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, you'll see in no time how great their eco-friendly products are. Drops delivers powerful cleaning from nature with plant and mineral-based formulas to your door and low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in our oceans and landfills. All the cleaning power comes in one small, efficient drops pod that costs less than what you're using now. Sign up for auto shipments to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel anytime. Use code dismantled at drops.com slash dismantled for 25% off your first order. So something that's been really interesting as my personal platform has grown is the judgment from people. Sometimes I love it because it's like they're holding me accountable. They're they're holding me accountable. And I, I want a community that holds me accountable, not one that's filled with a bunch of yes people. But then sometimes it seems as though I get even more. And I've heard that from a lot of other BIPOC environmentalists who feel like they're judged even more. In the context of intersectional environmentalists, I think because we are trying to cover so many topics and issues, we do get quite a few comments when we're not necessarily perfect. And some of that, I believe, is kind of a remnant of the sustainability community before this movement and so many other movements that have led to this place of thinking that you have to be perfect. And that's something, you know, with zero waste kind of transitioning to low waste and more of like a, you know, progress over perfection. But we have a lot of people who want us to be perfect. Have you felt that judgment? And how would you kind of respond to that? Even though we are very much a community-driven platform, we're not going to get it right 100% of the time. And we're not perfect. We're all still human at the end of the day. And we're always open to accepting accountability when we do maybe slip up. And there are going to be those times. And I think it's important as you know, we're all in our own journeys to really listen and listen to our community and and see how we can do better. Um, and fortunately, there haven't been a ton of those instances. But when we are called in or called out or whatever it is, we're not here to silence people. We're not here to take shit from people who just want to, you know, bring us down. Because at the end of the day, our mission is so big and so vast. And, you know, we're a community of so many people that that one person who was asking us why we're not talking about the animals and veganism <laughs> when we're talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter, that those are not the people that, you know, we need to be held accountable by. And those are not necessarily the voices that we want to amplify. So we are steadfast in our message and we will be held accountable and we, you know, are open and receptive to that. But we, at the end of the day, you know, we sometimes just put our foot down. Yeah, you know, when it comes to the IE platform, one of the, here, and I think that this goes for any platform that's addressing, you know, environmental issues with an intersectional lens. I am not here for the energy that comes from folks who are presenting the status quo as nuance. Like, I'm like, no, no, we are presenting the nuance that has been underamplified. Don't, like, in a vegan conversation, and people are like, the animals. I'm like, it's been about the animals, okay? <laughs> like, don't present that like it's nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure that's known. We love them. We love the animals. I am personally vegan, so. <laughs> yeah, no, we we are here for the animals. And, and, I, and I think that it's just so important that when we have issues, like, okay, ve- like we can stay on veganism for a second, right? Like when we have issues like veganism, just knowing that it's been about the animals for a long time, it's so important that you don't, jump into that conversation when we're trying to talk about people to remind us that it's about animals too. Like, we know. Yeah, and then even going off of that, like, how are humans impacted by Mm -hmm. the animal agriculture industry? That's something a lot of vegans don't talk about, about how the communities surrounding CAFOs are negatively impacted by the waste that comes from these, these, these... animal agriculture facilities that are so unnatural and they're really, they're, you know, causing cancer and like increased rates of cancer in surrounding neighborhoods, increased rates of um, miscarriages and other diseases that, you know, harm people. We should be having the, the people conversation when we're talking about veganism. 
Yeah. And I think that even beyond exploring the nuance within topics, just going back to, you know, BIPOC influencers getting harsh judgment for the way that we're navigating these spaces right now. I posted about this not too long ago. I think that one of the things that really frustrates me is people comparing, like, say, a a white person for first coming to a lot of these realizations versus someone in a BIPOC space. So like, let's say you have like two fashion influencers, right? One, and one of them is BIPOC and one of them is not. If a white fashion influencer is just now coming to these realizations, it's likely coming from a huge place of privilege. And when you come from a BIPOC community and you are also a fashion influencer and you have not historically been speaking to intersectional issues, I'm just not here for anybody to like harshly, harshly criticize um, BIPOC influencers in any way because I just think that there's been so much, I know for me personally as well, like my parents were not going to raise me in a way that was hyper aware because from their point of view, that was only going to damper my ability to navigate the academic spaces that I was so passionate about, the clubs and organizations that I was so passionate about, because a lot of them were hella white led, right? And like, I'm sure there's so many great parenting styles and and ways to kind of immerse your your children into like their cultures and reclaiming their history. But my parents didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to fight back around the narratives that were surrounding us. So it was so important to them that I just thrive, that I'm just able to succeed. And so, yeah, I I think that for me, a lot of this journey has been reclaiming my own identity and my own culture and kind of where my Latinx background plays into environmentalism and the relationship that I have because of that. But yeah, I, I totally understand why my family didn't ingrain that in us growing up. So I don't, I don't have any judgment for, you know, BIPOC that are learning along the way. Absolutely, like snaps to that. And I think, yeah, that really touches on code switching that a lot of BIPOC kind of do in the United States. Like my parents sent me to a super white and wealthy school that was really far away from me. I was on scholarship, you know, I was thrift shopping because not because it was cool and gentrified because like it's what we had to do. I didn't even know about sustainability until later on. A lot of my family, I guess, practices that now I'm like, oh, that's what the zero waste bloggers are doing. That's what my grandma did because we had to do that. Like it's just, it's really, it's really interesting. And that's why I really hope that people, we we stop shaming one another unless it's necessary because sometimes there are things that should be publicly shamed. Um, But that we're all on this journey, you know, just to figuring out who we are and sustainability isn't, it's a journey. So I think for, you know, another thing we can all very much speak to is how people hold activists and maybe content creators and influencers to a higher standard than they themselves might even hold themselves to. And so people just thrust these like very perfect images onto us or they expect perfection from us when in reality, we're all just humans. We make mistakes. Sometimes the barista gives us a plastic straw, even if we ask for no plastic straw. I hate when that happens. Hate when that happens, you know? And we're in a pandemic. So these issues are super nuanced. Like I remember I was so upset and this is so silly because it's like survival is important, but I was like, okay, I'm going to the the grocery store. I have this collection of bags that I want to reuse all the time and I I can't reuse them. And I had this sort of like, I, I can't do these low waste things that I've been doing, but it's like, we're in a pandemic. So I really hope if anyone is like shaming themselves, like it's okay if you might have to use a plastic bag or a box when you wanted to use like your shopping bags, like recycle it or try to repurpose it in some way. You can reuse those bags over and over again as trash bags, as storage, whatever it might be. But people are just for sanitary reasons, like using a lot of single use items. And there also are, you know, compostable items. So I think it's really great. A lot of um, places in California are using compostable and biodegradable options. But I just hope that people can be compassionate to themselves. Yeah. I mean, this pandemic is just, damn, it's stressful, right? Like everybody's on this crunch right now. And I think that just to do like daily activities, right? Like Leah, you just said, like going to the grocery store, you're like, ah, so... (laughs) I think, yeah, people people need to chill. And also, I think just as a final thought on that, it's so important that 
we remember that when we see somebody doing something, quote unquote, imperfectly, right? Nobody's perfect. Um, everyone is approaching sustainability from a different, like with different priorities and like a kind of contributing to it in different ways. So like, I know when people hype me up on social, they're like, oh, I see, I see all your zero waste, like low waste things. I'm like, you know what though? I still use paper towels, like guilty, guilty. I still use paper towels. Like we all have different things that, you know, we bring to the movement. I think that that's, it's so important to recognize that. Let's also dismantle perfectionism because nobody needs that. And also let's remember the real culprits of the climate crisis, the fossil fuel companies, the huge agriculture companies, and yeah, humans are on an individual level minute in terms of the amount of emissions mm-hmm. compared to what those huge, what was it, like 100 corporations are responsible for 70% of emissions, something like that? I think if I see anyone like popping off on any BIPOC, uh, zero waste or low waste activists, whatever, influencer people online, like I'm going to comment. I'm ready. I'm going to go off on that comment. If anyone's like, I'm just like, stop. Because who knows? I know a lot of these activists. I know their stories. A lot of people, you know, their parents didn't have retirement funds. They don't have retirement funds. I know a lot of people that are taking care of their families that basically gave up everything to allow them to be able to, you know, um, be able to do what they love. So I just wish people could be more compassionate. And like, if a sustainability influencer is partnering with a a brand that has a sustainable collection, like let them get that, get that bag, especially if their work is primarily like educate. Like there's just so many things. Didi and I, we've talked about this before and I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but it seems like you can't win. It's like, okay, we want you to be an activist, but we want you to be like a starving activist. And if you, we want you to be popular, but we don't want you to be too popular. You're getting too mainstream. You're doing too much. Oh, we want you to be creative, but we don't want your graphics to be too pretty. Like you just, you can never be perfect. And I think that's a lesson in and of itself that we're all learning this year is people are always going to say something. And that's what I love about IE because we pulled together this council and we have a community of so many different people with so many different personalities. And for me, if somebody doesn't like me, it doesn't stop there. They can't say, oh, well, I don't like this one black sustainability girl, so I'm just not going to follow any other people. There's so many people that I might not even get along with or I might get along with, whatever it is, that they can find. It shouldn't stop even if they don't like IE. It shouldn't stop if they don't like Didi, if they don't like Sabs for whatever stupid reason because you all are amazing that doesn't give them an excuse not to do this work because there's always going to be something that we don't like about something. And that's not an excuse to do the work because environmental justice is urgent. Okay. So we do have some younger listeners who are probably just trying to figure out what to do, how to get started. We have a lot of people that are applying for our internships. Um, Know that there should be some more opportunities soon, hopefully, but we're just getting set up. We have to pay taxes. We have things we need to get together. Um, But if you all had to give... (laughs) We're trying so hard. Um, But if you all had to... Uh, basically give some career advice, some college advice um, to people who want to do environmental justice work um, or just kind of step out on their own. Because I know for me, failure has been the biggest teacher in the whole wide world. Like I've worked in sustainable fashion and was like, okay, this is cute, but this isn't quite it. Or I started a blog that was all about food. LOL. I don't cook. So I had to give that up. And there's been... (laughs) so many, you know, things. And I think sometimes people, when they hear about IE, they hear the story. One post went viral, changed the world. That sounds like a, like a super, the beginning of a superhero movie. Look at us. Marvel, slide into our DMs. (laughs) Well, first and foremost, okay, I would love to learn quickly about one moment of failure for both of you all in your career journey and what it taught you and a piece of advice you would give to someone, a student, someone who's starting out on their journey, um, their career journey or activism journey. Mm. Yeah, I think that one thing I've learned for sure along the way, there's, there's not really one instance. I think something I was doing consistently for a while that I really wish I would have not done was not show up in certain settings that could have been really beneficial for me from an educational or networking standpoint because I didn't think I had the right 
education or the right background or like, like I think the best example is when I was studying sustainable fashion, I was like, that. Ah, well, I'm just like on a buying team. I'm not like a supply chain. Like I didn't study supply chain. So like, who am I to be a part of these conversations? So I kind of, you know, I did it to myself. Like I just didn't show up. And I think that that is one of the things that I regret. Um, obviously, eventually I found the courage to just like show up and be like, what's up y'all. But, <laughs> but I think that just like show, showing up and knowing that you do not have to study supply chain to be a part of this conversation. You do not have to study environmental studies or environmental engineering to be a part of this conversation. And I think that I hope that if anyone's doubting that right now, that you look to the IE platform and you see that how our platform grew because of a bunch of dope-ass artists. I feel like artists are the underrated MVPs of the world. There's so many other underrated MVPs, but like, I think it was so funny. Early criticism that we got was, your graphics are too pretty. And I don't know if all those comments were just coming to me. I don't know if y'all got any of those, but I was kind of like, really? That's what you can say? People are just fishing. They're they're just fishing for things to like be salty about. Um, yeah, I I majored in advertising. <laughs> literally like the bane, I did, literally the bane of capitalism was my major. But at the same time, I, I knew in college I wasn't going to go into an ad agency. I like have flashbacks to this Tampax ad I had to make in college, like my senior year of college. And I was just like, that's not going to happen for me for the rest of my life. But at the same time, the basis of advertising is just promoting a message to as many people as you possibly can. And you can use that for bad or you can use that for good. So I think we all have our own unique strengths and we can all bring that to the environmental movement and the environmental conversation. So thank you for bringing that up, Didi. Um, in terms of advice, I guess I would our say... Failures. Oh, our failures. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I try not to think of things as failures. I like to think of them as life lessons, but I would say maybe one of my first... Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I would say my first failure was like with the trash jar, that mason jar of like, I would try. I know. Oh my gosh. It was so cringy. Um, just the fact that I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with it. And I was so angry at myself. And then I was like, why am I, am I, expecting such perfection from myself mm -hmm. and how much less anxiety would I have if I didn't hold myself to the standard and that kind of sparked an evolution at least in my um you know in my platform of maybe starting to have a little bit more nuanced conversations around zero waste not just zero but you know some questions that I had come up with were like how do you deem a piece of trash yours you know, like if you if you are picking up litter for, you know, you're doing a little trash cleanup in your neighborhood, much love to the folks, everyone who does that, you know, good, good steward to the environment. Does all of that trash that you have now collected, is that your trash? Would you put that in your mason jar? Or let's say your friend is going out of town and they have some bread that they don't want to go bad and they give you this bread that comes in a plastic bag. Is that plastic bag your trash because they gave it to you? And so I just had all these like really interesting conversations of like who decides what goes into your trash jar and then really just like reframing the whole idea around zero waste living. And I feel like in, at least for me personally, that kind of sparked new thoughts and inquiries and, and just kind of expanded my perception of zero waste and, and just widened it to more of a holistic perspective of environmentalism, which definitely favors, like you said, Leah, progress over perfection. I love that. I think it's, I think it's cool how you record, like you took the whole mason jar thing and which is very like widely accepted form of sustainability when you're starting your journey, right? Is like eliminate your trash, which like, yeah, all in good. But then you like switch to like a systems thinking approach. And I think that that's, that's so important. Progress. And I think something that's really important too, is that not to shame people. I guess sometimes there's a lot of like projection that's going on. Um, but 
I didn't know about environmentalism really until college. So I try to think about any feedback or like criticism that I, you know, have that might really just be a projection of like, oh, I'm so evolved now. But it's like, no, I'm not. Don't let your ego get that big. Um, of like me, think about your younger self. Like if you were talking to yourself before you learned about environmentalism before you learned about sustainability, before you learned about something. And that's just something that, you know, I hope people that are listening to this um, can be a little bit compassionate because sometimes people aren't able to be as sustainable as maybe they'd like to be because they're focusing on just waking up every day and having clean air to breathe, which so many black and brown and low income communities don't have. So it's not like they don't care, but they might, you know, maybe that energy could be directed somewhere else. Um, But yeah, as we get closer to a close, something that we talk about a lot at IE is the fact that joy is really radical and also rest, which we, you know, thank you so much for the nap ministries. Everyone should really check them out because they've really pioneered the fact that rest taking naps, literally, um, is a radical act in and of itself. And I think lately, um, we've all just been so focused on environmental activism that I realized that I was not experiencing joy. And I was creating content that was educational in nature for other people, mostly white people. So just using a lot of my time and energy, basically doing what I was trying to do when I was in a predominantly white middle school of, I want to be seen and validated essentially by white people. And I was like, this is not what I exist to do solely. That's not what I eat exists to do. And that joy in a world like this, especially for BIPOC, is also an act of resistance, is also an act of activism. Because to go through all of this social injustice, environmental injustice, whatever it is, and to still be able to smile, what a beautiful way to say fuck you to the system. But for you all, (laughs) how do you practice joy? Why is joy important to you? And how are you trying to care for yourselves as you also care for the planet? One thing that I find to be especially helpful for my mental health and wellness is just moving my body. I like to work out several times a week and it helps me kind of, gives me space to almost meditate or focus on something that's not just work specific. Um, Listening to music, eating nourishing meals, uh, connecting with my friends. uh, Those are all kind of things that I use to, to fill my own cup. Yeah, I love that. Um, for me, I think that I've been doing a lot of healthy unpacking lately of workaholism. Thank you, fashion industry and Manhattan. Um, (laughs) won't name any names, but (laughs) check me out on LinkedIn. (laughs) I've been unpacking that a lot. And I think that one of the things that I'm trying to connect with more deeply right now is the fact that workaholism and overworking yourself is such a beautiful and intentional design that just totally screws you within the world of capitalism. And it works so well. It works so well because it preys on your sense of self so deeply. And and I put myself in a really tough spot in Manhattan and had to peace out at some point. So I think that for me, it's about recognizing that like, wow, if I am not taking any time for myself, any time to really assess the intention behind everything that I'm doing and who I am within all of that. So like within the environmental movement, as an example, I have no time to connect with my identity and what it means, or I have no time to contribute to the retelling of my history and like my my lineage, my heritage. And I think that when I frame it that way for myself, because I love, love reading and watching documentaries about Latinx history and culture. And it's it's something that I haven't had a ton of time to do, but then I I sit back and I'm like, well, why haven't I had time to do that? And I'm like, oh, because I'm driving myself nuts at work. And I think that, yeah, making that connection and just building more intention behind like taking a step back and making sure I'm taking time for myself um, is so important. I feel like the pandemic has also revealed a lot of things about workaholism and that... (laughs) 
when, you know, a lot of people were furloughed or lost their jobs and, and being forced to sit at home and not really, yeah, not really do anything and just not necessarily feel super productive given the environment and the zeitgeist of the world that we live in. A lot of people were just feeling bad because they weren't productive, which capitalism, what are you doing? Y'all there it's, you know, it's really ingrained in us. It's so systemic. And I think that part of self-care is recognizing that you don't have to be productive 100% of the time. I don't know. Yeah. Having to sit still with ourselves this year, for me, I feel like if anyone were to ask me, like, who are you? At the beginning of 2020, I would have said, I work at a sustainable apparel company. You know, I have a boyfriend, I have this, blah, blah. None of that has to do with who I am. And even now, like being an environmentalist or this job, like that's not my primary identifier, you know? Like I feel like, like Didi was saying, like it's so easy to find value in the place that you're working and the work that you do, even if it's activism work, to basically exhaust yourself and ignore okay, who am I? Who am I becoming? Who do I want to be? Because yeah, capitalism is one hell of a drug. But to end, I would love to see what piece of advice you would give your younger self, knowing what you know now. I think I would have told myself to allow myself to be whoever I want to be and not to let that external validation define me. Not my job, not a movement, none of that. I want to be defined by the joy that I'm able to experience and how well I'm able to care for myself and by extension of that, others, because I think a lot of it really starts within. I think for me, um, I would say, and I still try to continue telling myself this whenever I'm feeling a little bit low, but if I were to speak to my younger self right now, I would say, you cannot hate yourself into loving yourself. And I think that can span a lot of different things. Wow. That, that's a quote right there. Shout out to my friend Jackie for teaching me that quote a long time ago. I love you, Jackie. Jackie. If I could speak to my younger self, I think that I would try to tell her that no one has to give you permission to learn about the stuff that you want to learn about. I think it, it took me a long time to figure out that, like, I'm allowed to study systems of oppression, even if people think it's weird, right? <laughs> like, I'm allowed to do what I want. So, yeah, I think that I was I was such a curious kid, but felt the need to assimilate to, like, so many people around me. And it was like, uh, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about, like, volleyball. I'm like, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. So just permission to to learn about whatever you want. And with that, I hope you all know that progress is always better than perfection. And me, Sabs, and Didi, we're on this journey with you all. See you next time.